We have feelings and then we have all this meaning that we make around the feelings and all this worry that we have around the feelings and all this judgment that we have around the feelings. That's the monkey mind adding all that stuff on. Like the original feeling is so benign compared to all of the others. The original feeling is feeling, it's intense. It's loss, it's, it's sadness, whatever it is. If you have something happen to you, but then you put all this worry and all this negative self-judgment on top of it. That's the monkey mind just really exponentially making our problems worse. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD podcast. I'm excited today to be talking to Jody Amen about her new book, Anxiety, I'm So Done With You, A Teen's Guide to Ditching Toxic Stress and Hardwiring Your Brain for Happiness. I'm so excited to talk anxiety. As anybody who's a regular listener here knows, I struggle with anxiety. My daughter struggles with anxiety, and I'm always excited to have a new perspective and a new way to kind of tackle this beast that really is such a beast when when you're in the midst of it and aren't yet really taking control or able to take control even. Um, Jody, thanks so much for being here. Will you start by introducing yourself? Let everyone know who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. My name is Jody Amen. I'm from Rochester, New York, and I've been a family therapist for over 20 years. So I've been working with kids and teens and parents and couples for all that time and, and really helping them overcome all the challenges in their life. And it came out of, you know, I think I came into this work because of my own health crisis, just like a lot of people come into healing work. Mm-hmm. You know, once you heal yourself, it's just so elating that you really want to pass this along to others. But, you know, I struggled with anxiety for two decades in my life since I was really little till my mid-20s. And I, I tell these stories in my books, but when I when I decided, when I realized that I had learned anxiety, that I'd learned how to how to feel this way, that I decided that I could unlearn it. And I set a, I set a path for myself to figuring that out. And I completely cured myself. So I know it's curable. And it's not like I'm just a person who had anxiety and I cured it. I mean, I'm a mental health professional, right? I've been in this field for 25 years and I've been putting this into practice with thousands of my clients. So I say it with some authority that anxiety is curable. You don't have to stay like that. And I think a lot of people actually stay anxious because they think that they can't get better. I think there is a discourse. There is a message from a lot of other mental health providers that it's just something you have to manage and live with. And uh, that's not true. I think that keeps people really stuck. So I'm here to share the message that you can get better. It's amazing. Yeah, and I I was looking through your book and realizing that it really truly is written for teens. So many books say that they're for teens, but they read very much like a book that would read for a parent or a clinician. And this book is truly set up for the teen 
And it has a workbook component, which I think is so important that you're able to really sit down and put things on paper, work through them in that more concrete way. Um, when you're writing it down, it, I think, becomes more real in our minds and it also can be very cathartic. I know my daughter, anytime she does some sort of workbook about anxiety or when she's journaling, she feels enormously better just getting it out and putting it down on paper. So that workbook component, I think, is huge. You're not just reading the information, you're actually taking action on it. Yeah, I love that piece too. I don't like to call it a workbook because my 15-year-old was like, we don't want to do more work. Right, right. You know, so, but these are practical exercises and they're tried and true. I mean, I've been using them for the last 20 years in my practice, ways to do that. And writing is incredibly healing. And there's a reason for it because we get to be a witness to ourselves. Like it gives us a bit of a distance. And anytime you have some like psychic distance from the chaos of the situation or uh, maybe it's not so chaotic. Most situations are. But once you take that step back and can see from a distance, you have all kinds of perspective you didn't have when you're in, enveloped in the craziness of it, especially something like anxiety. When you're in the anxiety, you know, you're, you're in this desperation and this urgency. And so you can't see things from a big picture view. But when you write, so there's something, there, there's a reason why it's so powerful to write. And the reason is it, it puts us into our, um, our memory, uh, it's a stream of consciousness, memory development level. And that's the highest level of memory that we could have. It's the most mature level. It gives us, it allows us to be a witness of ourself. And that's why the mindfulness is so powerfully healing, because again, that's what it does. It invites us to be a witness of ourself. Mm. And anytime we do that, it gives us this big picture view. And um, definitely anxiety is not as scary from that big picture view. Definitely you could see a lot of, you have understandings you didn't have when you were too close to the situation. So it's really powerful. I I love using writing uh, to heal. And so, see, I put it in, it's not really much work. (laughs) Don't tell your teenager this is work. I was like, please don't put the word work on the front cover of this book. So (laughs) we call it journal prompts on the front cover, but yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's just such an important piece of it, but you're absolutely right. If we call it a workbook, our kids are not going to want to do it. It sounds too much like school. Yeah. Let's start with understanding anxiety. I think it's a very difficult thing for people who don't or who haven't had much anxiety in their life to really understand what is happening physiologically. You know, it's not just that we're having these thoughts and we could just shut them off. That's not the reality of the situation. It's not a switch that can be flipped. So how do parents really understand what is happening when their child, their teen, um, their young adult even is really struggling with anxiety in different situations? Well, it's, it, I think people don't understand it even who have anxiety. I think there's a yeah. lot of mystery, oh, yeah. right? So whether you have anxiety or don't have anxiety, people don't understand anxiety. First of all, people call it all different things. Like we have many, many words for this phenomenon, for, for our adrenaline. You know, when we have, when anxiety is really when we're anxious, when we're upset, when we're nervous, when we're uh, stressed out, let's see what else, frustrated, angry. It's all the same hormone. 
right? It's all yeah. the same hormone. It's different levels of that hormone, but it's all the same excited. It's all the same hormone. And so what's really interesting is we think these are all different things, <laughs> but right. it's, we call it different things and then we feel different. We, we have this sense that we don't understand each other because everyone, fe- but everyone's just calling something different, but the feeling is similar. Of course, there's different symptoms and people experience different symptoms, but all of the symptoms are of adrenaline. Right. So there's a little bit of adrenaline or a lot of adrenaline in your blood, and that might cause different symptoms or for different people, they may notice different things, but it's still, it's still acting on us the same way. And so I love to break that down, demystify anxiety. That's my number one. You know, I have six steps to heal anxiety. And the first step is understanding it biologically. Because once we really, it just takes all the mystery away. When anxiety is mysterious, when you don't understand it and it just comes random, it comes out of the blue, you feel out of control and it just increases it. If you're like, I don't know when it's going to come, I don't know what to do about it, it increases it. And that's part of how anxiety stays so powerful in people's lives is it, it's confusing and it's mysterious. So we take the mystery out and then it's like, oh, this is what you do. Okay. You know, and, and, um, and so in all of my anxiety, I have a lot of, I have 16 online programs for people, helping them connect to their higher wisdom. But the, in all of them, in all my anxiety programs, I teach that biology of anxiety, which I feel like when I do this in session and when I do this online, I feel like it heals about 50% of the people right off the bat. Just taking the mystery out of it is it heals half the people. And then the rest of the people have to go through the others, the rest of the six steps, but they work. So don't worry. <laughs> if you're like, I want these six steps, come yeah, get this book, get my other book, You Want Anxiety Zero. Now, I think all ages could read this book, actually, both of my books. My first book, You Want Anxiety Zero, I've had teens from 13 and up read this book. Um, I just, I don't swear in my, um, in any of my public writing. And so it's, it's okay for any age. And then, so in this teen book, I feel like for college age kids, they probably would relate to me a little bit more if I swear, swore in there, but I have (laughs) parents of like 13 year olds are going to buy this book. So I had to keep that out, but I think it's relatable. Those are hard ages, right? 13, 23, like, you know, it's hard to relate to everybody, but um, I feel like all ages could read this book, Anxiety, I'm So Done With You. First of all, both of my titles externalize anxiety, right? We take it out of a person's identity and give it a personify it as it's a separate entity. And I think that's healing just by reading the title. It starts the process. It starts you thinking about anxiety in a different way because anxiety is a bully. Anxiety lies. Anxiety is just so mean and loves to create chaos in your life. And if you think, start to think about it that way, it gives you something to work against instead of fighting yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about monkey mind and the inner critic, which I know are separate things, but I think both of these are really big, especially for teens, but the monkey mind, just understanding that concept is really helpful to kind of understand how that spark of anxiety ends up taking over. Yeah. So, so the monkey mind, so that was um, something that was a metaphor. Um, Buddha, I think said it for the first time, thinking about a monkey swinging from branch to branch, like thought to thought to thought, you know, really we have like, what is it like 10,000 thoughts 
a day going through our mind or in every moment going through our mind. And most of them don't come into our conscious mind. They're in our subconscious mind. And it's those things that are like familiar or weird or scary or have some kind of energy that we pull into us. And so if we think something and it has that kind of energy and we pull it into our consciousness, we could really start to worry about it. Like, why am I thinking of this? Well, we're thinking a million things, but that just came into our consciousness. So people often get hooked on something. Um, well, there's so many things to say about the monkey mind. This is just one little element here. But it's it's like you, we have feelings and then we have all this meaning that we make around the feelings and all this worry that we have around the feelings and all this judgment that we have around the feelings. That's the monkey mind adding all that stuff on. Like the original feeling is so benign compared to all of the others. And the original feeling is feel it's intense. It's loss, it's it's sadness, whatever it is. If you have something happen to, but then you put all this worry and all this negative self-judgment on top of it, that's the monkey mind just really um, exponentially making our problems worse. And so if we understood what was happening, and I think I teach this in a way that's quite unique, if we understand what's happening, then we could really switch gears and have compassion for ourselves to so stop that negative self-judgment and really decrease the intensity of all of the things we feel. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a couple of examples of what a typical teen inner critic would be saying? Well, okay, so say there's a breakup. And after someone breaks up, of course, what, what do we do? We feel, well, we feel sad and hurt. That's a loss. That's, you know, an appropriate response to the situation. But then right away we think, oh my gosh, I can't get over this. This is like days later, you know, you're thinking, I can't get over this. Everyone would be over it by now. He's okay. And I'm not okay. Um, everyone thinks that something's wrong with me because what's wrong with me? I can't get over it. You know, these are all the thoughts that come to us immediately when we feel something. We're like, how am I going to get through this? I don't think I can handle this. I just got to stop. I got to stop thinking about this. But obviously those thoughts are really attaching us to it even more. Like, I wish I could stop thinking about this. I wish I could stop thinking about it. <laughs> like how many of us did that? Like I'm raising my hand. I've been there so many times where you're just like hooked on, you're just upset about how you feel and judging it so harshly. And this judgment attaches us to it. So it gives it a lot more energy, a lot more struggle, um, a lot more intenseness. And so we suffer longer and more intensely than we would if we didn't judge ourselves. So what I recommend is having compassion. So whatever you feel, so someone breaks up with you and you're hurt. You know, um, my daughter today got her first job. She's 16. She got her first job at amusement park. And we're waiting here. We're in New York State. So we're waiting to hear this is coronavirus. If you're listening yep. to this as a recording long from now, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic when things are opening up. And we're waiting to hear if amusement parks are opening or not. And they have been delayed. We thought they were opening in zone four uh, or phase four. And so it's a incredible loss because it's like, now I have nothing to do all summer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she's very, very sad. That's so appropriate, right? To feel that way. But kids today are so scared of feeling bad because they think something's wrong with them to feel bad. This is really human to have, to have this response over a loss. Um, but then it's so scary. So then that they're doubling down, you know? So first of all, they're like, this is not how I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be more evolved and feel good. And then they're also worried, like, how am I going to survive being this sad? It's like, there's, they don't want to be uncomfortable at all. Yes. 
And I think there's commercialism really is a part of that, right? There's, you know, the commercialism is like instant gratification. You should have an instant gratification all the time. So kids are not really learning. Like it's okay to be uncomfortable sometimes. It's totally human to feel that way. And if you have compassion for it, instead of judging it, and instead of worrying about it, you go through it a lot easier. Yeah. And I think our, our kids with ADHD and anxiety and autism, they struggle even more with this avoidance of, of discomfort or even perceived discomfort or potential, not even knowing that something might be uncomfortable, but it could possibly be. So I'm just not going to go there. It's exactly. been a, a big struggle for us. Oh, I break that down in the book. So I, I, I really, I really answer that for people. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that it's going to change everything. You know, it's yeah. like a sense of entitlement. It's like, I shouldn't have to be, I shouldn't have to do anything I don't want to do or be uncomfortable or um, yeah. then, then you feel like you can't do anything. And I think the fear too, for kids who do have, uh, you know, differently wired neurology, they fear, you know, those symptoms coming up if they get into an uncomfortable or overwhelming situation. And so there's even more of that resistance and that wall kind of built, which can be super difficult. So I'm excited that that you're also really addressing that in your book. And I think it's a big part of growing the anxiety within ourselves when we start to give ourselves those those internal thoughts when we're assigning them to those situations ahead of time. You know, so much of it I feel like is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I'm super worried about the way something's going to go and I'm obsessed with it for a week or two weeks and I just know that it's going to be so horrible, how could it go well <laughs> when I've come into it with that thinking? Right, right. We create that. You know, we take actions on our expectations. So if we expect things to go great, then we take actions to set that up to go great. And if we if we expect things to fail, then we don't try so hard and, you know, we don't work so hard because what's the point of it? Right. Yeah. So our expectations and what we, you know, it is about the action, you know, it's not about like manifesting, you just put it out there and it comes, obviously, you know, it's right. about if you have that expectation, like I could do whatever I want to do, then you are going to take action to do that. But it, it helps the, it, it propels the action. And so the action is the thing that makes it manifest, but it wouldn't be there without the belief. So the belief is important to have first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about what parents can do to help their teens reduce anxiety and to be more confident? Well, first of all, we have to have confidence in them. You know, I think that's, you know, parents are so worried when you're, when your kid has anxiety, then you feel so worried, like, oh my gosh, how are they going to suffer? What are they going to do with their life now? And we need to have confidence in them because if we're worried about them, we're kind of validating that there is something to worry about that there is a huge problem. And so we need to tell the kids this is temporary. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to heal from this. We'll find one. We'll do one at a time. And, you know, the ones don't work. We'll just go to the next one. But eventually we'll find something. Like, this is healable. And we're not going to let you stay this way. I mean, this is what I say to my clients when I first talk to young people. I say, we're not going to leave you this way. Like, there's no reason to leave you suffering this bad because we could we could stop you from suffering. And so if parents all give kids the message, 
when I teach parents, because I have programs for parents who have kids with anxiety, and that's what I say first. It's like, tell them that you're not going to leave them like this, that you'll be with them and we'll figure it out and it's figure outable and we're going to get over it because people get over it. Setting that belief for them that you have confidence in them and confidence that they could heal changes everything because then you have all these people saying to kids, well, you'll have your wires, your brain is wired this way. And so you're just going to have to learn how to deal with it. That is not even true. I'm, it's so upsetting that this message is still getting out there in this day and age to people. And it causes years and years more of suffering until someone comes along and tells them that's not true. They can get better. So I, I think that's the best thing that parents could do is, is let kids know that this is temporary, that this is totally normal given the context of our lives right now. And, um, and we don't have to stay this way. Yeah. And having confidence in our kids and really communicating that is so empowering for them. Exactly. But we do, we worry about them and we, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely and loving, you know, to worry about your kids and let them know you're worried. It makes them feel like they care. You care, but just for a moment, then they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. There's something to worry about. Like there's an energetic feeling that comes back on them. But if you believe in them, you're like, you got this. I know you could get over this. Like it, I know and people do it. You could do it. You have a lot of skills. I've seen you do a lot of things in your life. That's amazing. I know you could do this and I'm with you every step of the way. We'll research, we'll do whatever we have to do. We'll find Jody Amen. We'll have her get us better. <laughs> and um, yeah, and if you do that, wow, it just changes the mindset about it. And that's why I think the biggest message we have to give to young people is that my that I totally understand why you feel the way you feel because the context of like having this device in your hand that has messages from all over and then having the coronavirus pandemic and there's, and there's, you know, school shootings and there's this civil unrest, like there's so much happening that is, um, it's stressful and, um, police brutality. I mean, there's just on all levels, like people are scared yeah, and, um, cause there's a context for that, you know, and, and sometimes there needs to be this chaos for things to reorganize in a good way. And so how do we support people through it? You know, humans are highly adaptable. I have so much faith in us. Yeah, yeah. I think so much of this too comes from feeling a lack of control. Just in general with anxiety, it, you know, feeling like you don't have control over something can certainly be anxiety provoking. But I think it's a hallmark of anxiety. I think that is anxiety. Yeah. All all out of all control issues are anxiety issues. Everyone who has anxiety has a sense of feeling out of control. It is anxiety. So yeah, absolutely. But that's comes from these messages. If you, if you watch my TEDx, well mean to talk. So you could go Jody Eamon TEDx, you could just look it up. But I, I describe the three messages that people are getting with these 4,000 messages a day, these kids are getting on their phone all day and probably even more since the quarantine, they're probably on their phone even more hours. Mm-hmm. Messages are so content, constant and they are messages that make them feel more out of control. Like these messages are disconnecting kids from cause and effect that they could affect their life. Like they can do something to get effects that they want, that they have agency in their life. And it's kind of removing kids from understanding that they are an agent of their life, that they could respond to situations. And so we have to go back and teach them that again. You know, we have to go back and show them and and, and help them see it because they'll feel more and more and more out of control. 
and less and less touch with the skills that they have. They have skills. They have skills. We don't have to teach them skills. They have skills. They have coping skills, but they don't know they have them. So they can't access them if they need them, you know? Sometimes they can, but they don't recognize them. They don't celebrate them. They don't identify with them. And so we have to bring them out so that they can access them, identify with them. You know, they identify with, I'm a a mess, right? I'm, I'm anxious. I'm a mess. I'm like, you know, I'm worthless. I'm out of control. And so we really have to change those stories. Yeah. And we do as a culture kind of attach that to teens. We say, oh, the teen years are so hard. You know, you're going to be trying to figure things out. It's going to be chaotic and you may not know what to do when you're going to be faced with all of these challenging decisions. And, you know, we do kind of set them up for feeling that they're going to be out of sorts. Yeah, right. That's true. Also, mm. though, we also tell teens that this is this is the best time of your life. And right. I think that's, that's really dangerous too, right? Because then they're thinking, oh my God, it gets worse after this. This right. is so awful. And, and I have nothing to look forward to. So I think that's quite dangerous to tell teenagers that because things can totally get better. You know, if you're suffering, things definitely could get better w- w- at any age. So yeah, so, so I, I stop telling teens that this is the best time of your life. This should be the best time of your life that makes them feel horrible. Yeah. But just, so, so really the message we want to give teens is you got this. You could figure this out. You have this incredible brain. We've given you tons of skills growing up. You're, you know, you're very uh, ethical, and you you know right from wrong, and you're going to make these good decisions. And always be kind to people, and um, and take care of people. And you you got this. You know, yeah. Um, kids need a, a sense of purpose. They need to have their lives need to have some meaning, just like any of us. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it, it's hard to figure that out when you're a teen. It's, it's a process, I think, but it's also a process that we can facilitate and support as parents so that it can be more manageable for them instead of this, oh, there's the whole world and I have to figure out what I am to do and what my place is. You know, giving them that support, that scaffolding can really exactly. help them feel more confident in that process, I think. I mean, everyone has like an affinity for something, you know, kids grow up and, and I think if they're, if they're on their screen so much, sometimes they're losing, like having some affinity because they're just, you know, consuming content so much. And then that keeps them distracted enough from being interested in anything. But, you know, a lot of times as kids are growing up, they, you see that, you know, this kid really enjoys books about animals and just wants to learn everything about evolution and animals. And then this other, uh, little kid likes um, engines and mechanisms and machines and stuff like that, you know, and, and really, really interested in those kind of things. So people do grow up with affinities. And if we encourage those affinities, that can be really helpful to, to have them finding. And the purpose doesn't have to be a humanitarian mission. You know, the purpose could just be like creating necklaces or, and they can be temporary temporary purposes, you know, that for now I make jewelry and later I, I don't know, take care of my friend and, you know, some other time I'm in a show and I'm, you know, entertaining people on the show. Yeah, there's so many options. And I, we tend to really, in our culture, define 
certain careers as or certain interests as more successful. Not that we've, you know, created a manual and written that down necessarily, but just we get this sense in our culture that certain careers like business or finance are going to automatically make you more successful than something like um, a dog walker or, you know, something that doesn't take a lot of training, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And it's really time that we stop doing that. It's really time that we let kids decide what makes them happy, what makes them feel fulfilled and like they have a purpose and then figuring out how they can make a career or life around that. Yeah, exactly. Even all the trades, I mean, those are entrepreneurial jobs, right? To be a plumber or or a carpenter or something, you know, there um, you could do really well that you could have your own business and be doing that. So, you know, we, we do, there's so many different options, even a dog walker, that's your own business too, right? Yeah. You know, it, the world's changing, you know, we could create our own job, you know, entrepreneurship is just growing and growing. So we don't, we don't have to fit into a little box. We could create what we want and, and I, I think that's really exciting. And are we preparing them in the schools that we have now to be doing that? I'm not sure. You know, I have a 28-year-old and I'm like, you should start your own business. You have such a great head for it. Like, he's just brilliant. He thinks about big picture view of stuff. And he's like, mm, I just don't want to take the risks. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you're young. Like, go do it. You know, Yeah. this is the time. So, um, you know, it's like, are we raising people to have such trust in themselves that they could take some risks and uh, and do things that really would, you know, then they're not working, right? They're just loving what they do so much. They never work a day in their life. Right, exactly. And I think that's a big piece of it. You know, we we tend to let kids think that adulthood is this drudgery. And, and that comes partly by saying, hey, these are the best years of your life, right? And they don't want to grow up now. They don't want to be adults. They fear it. They are not even a lot of kids driving at 16. They're putting it off and putting it off. And it's, it's amazing to me because I was every milestone age. I was like, yep, I'm doing that now, <laughs> right? Like I couldn't wait to get there. And this generation overall is much more wanting to take their time, but I don't think we've caught up to that. We're still expecting them to go to college after high school and to get a, a job that's going to set them up after college. And, and that just doesn't have to be the path. And it's not the right path for a lot of people. But we still, I think as a culture, we're still following that really pigeonholed expectation of the journey. And then we set them up to really be in fear of being an adult and being on their own. Let's talk to kind of wrap things up a little bit. Your last chapter in your book, Self-Care is the New Healthcare, mm -hmm. which I completely agree with. I do a lot of work in the mom self-care realm with parents of kids with neurobehavioral or neurodevelopmental disorders. And so self-care is a big a big talking point for me um, all of the time. And I think it's a really important thing that we should be teaching our kids as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so important. 
to do these things. You know, I think there's just such a myth out there that happy people are just happy and they're mm-hmm. just lucky. And then it makes us feel really, really different when we don't feel happy and, and like unworthy. And so there's a huge problem. But if we understood that happy people uh, aren't just happy, that's not just, they actually generate their own happiness. They actually work really hard to, uh, you know, release things that, um, that make them suffer and bring in the things that make them happy. If we understood that, then we would know that we have to do these, these daily practices to take care of ourselves. And if we, you know, because a lot of people think if, if you're, de- if you've been depressed for a really long time, you're like, oh, I have to work harder than most people. I have to work really hard to be happy. But you think that no one else is working. Because no, you don't see that stuff. You don't see how hard people are working to change their mindset and, you know, be around good people and put time into those relationships so they have good people around them to be happy. You know, we don't see that from the outside. We think that's just lucky. So I, I wanted to add this piece in, in the book to let people know the research on the practices that people who are the happiest use to maintain and sustain their happiness. And there are things that we all know. I mean, this, nothing's going to surprise any, any reader in this book, Penny. It's, they're going to read it and be like, yes, okay, we, I need to get enough sleep. But I'm going to give you the real like how much you really need and then eating. And we're going to talk about meditation. We talk about all those things that we know are good for us. Yeah, We know that that helps our emotional wellness, but I explained a little bit more of why kids need to know why before they're going to buy into something. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And you just described me for the majority of my life. I thought that people who were happy just had something different than I had. They were just born that way or they had better life circumstances. And around the time I turned 40, I just had kind of had enough of being the victim, even though I didn't recognize yet that really I was being the victim in my life and um, did a lot of research and a lot of self-work. And it is work and it's, it's daily practice, but it's completely turned around. And it amazes me because I really dismissed that for so many years, I dismissed that, you know, we had control over those sorts of outcomes. And, you know, I've talked about this on numerous, numerous podcast episodes, because I feel like it's so valuable. I mean, I would give anything to have known to do that work and known the power of it in my 20s, or even my teens, rather than, you know, when I turned 40. So it's it's so. I think it, I'm going to works. save people like decades of suffering, right? If they read this yes. book, you'll save decades of suffering. It's true, and and I really want I want it to be in the health classes, like in the curriculum in high schools. I think that mm. I'm, I'm approaching health teachers and saying, put this part because they all do a unit on mental health. That's from the 1980s. It's the same unit that I yeah. did for my kids. It had and truly. It has been the exact same information that we did. Yeah. So I'm really hoping that this could be part of, this should be part of the curriculum. If all kids read this, they'll know how to have self-compassion. I mean, I wish we learned that in middle school because while we could save ourselves a lot of heartache, a lot of negative self-judgment, a lot of that inner critic that is BS, you know, we could get rid of it earlier if we really understand what was happening and know how to do that pivot. It's so easy. Just have that compassion for yourself. And so, yeah, that's, I think everyone needs to read it. 
Yeah. Because I don't want them to have to get to 40 and have to figure it all out <laughs> right, for themselves. Right. Because there's a lot of damage could be done in that time. And a lot of healing could be done for them and for people around them if they get this information now. A lot of missed joy, really. Yeah, life's too short to miss out on mm-hmm. joy. Yeah. And, you know, the key takeaway is that it's possible for everyone. You know, yes. I thought it just wasn't wasn't my path. It wasn't possible for me for so long. And I'm sure that was some anxiety at play too, kind of trumping that up and, you know, monkey mind running away with it. A lot of people think that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know where we necessarily get that from. Maybe it's a cultural thing, or maybe it's just that we don't talk about it. And so yeah, we, don't we keep share. it inside. And so we have to make our own conclusions. Yeah. And so self-blame is just the easiest conclusion to make. Yeah, but we really need to let our kids know that happiness is possible for everyone. Everyone can can feel good. Are you going to have challenges and struggles and sometimes that you don't feel good? Of course, because we're humans, but you know, you you have the overall control. You're steering your ship, whether you feel like it or not, you really are. And that's so, so, so empowering and a really important message. I surely hope that you get a lot of schools on board. I think we need to talk a lot more about ourselves and being human in school, not just book knowledge, but really, you know, how to live a good life is something that they should be teaching. Mm-hmm. So for everyone listening, you can find the show notes with a link to Jody's books, as well as her website, jodiamon.com and social media. And all of that is at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 098 for episode 98. Thank you again, Jody, for sharing a little of your time and your wisdom. I can't wait for some of the families in our audience to read the book and to let us know how much it has changed in their lives. Yeah, me too. Anxiety, I'm so done with you. (laughs) Yes. Let's all be done with it. Yes. It's so good. Well, thank you so much. And with that, we'll end the episode. I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com. Thank you.